HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Kane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit Kane5.com. I'm Greg Bresnitz. And I'm Darren Bresnitz. We're the host of Snacky Tunes. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. All right. Thanks so much for tuning in to the Heritage Radio Network. We are coming to you, as always, live from the back of Roberta's Pizza here in Bushwick, Brooklyn. And you have tuned in to the Farm Report. I'm your host, Aaron Fairbanks. And very excited to kick off a conversation today about carbon. We are on the line with Courtney White. Courtney is author of a new book, Grass, Soil, Hope, A Journey Through Carbon Country. And he joins us today. Thanks for uh, being our guest. Uh, Thanks for having me on the show. Well, so I want to start, I guess, with with kind of some basic definitions. When we're talking about carbon, kind of what are we talking about? (laughs) Yeah, well, um, when I started to do the research for the book, I wasn't quite sure what carbon meant as well. You know, from the main reports you get in the media, carbon's the bad guy, right? We've got carbon pollution in the atmosphere. We've got a war on carbon, a post-carbon economy. I thought, boy, what is this carbon everybody keeps talking about? And then when I started to do the research, I realized, boy, carbon is the good guy, actually. It's, it's in everything on the planet, it's in the food, in the water, in the air. It's in us. Uh, and I began to talk to carbon in, uh, farmers and ranchers and carbon pioneers doing interesting uh, practices to sequester carbon in soils from the atmosphere. And I thought, wow, this is uh, carbon actually is part of the answer, not just part of the problem. And um, so in the first part of the book, I just described kind of what carbon is. It's an element, of course. It's on the periodic ch- chart at number six. Um, but it's it's the essential element of life on the planet. Uh, it, it forms all these compounds, uh, both organic and, and inorganic. Uh, it's uh, essential to anything that, that lives uh, is carbon-based. That's why we're called carbon-based life forms. And uh, and how it gets cycled through the atmosphere and the oceans and the soils. Uh, is extremely important to maintaining life on the planet. And that's 
that's what I started to dig into, and I, what I found was that uh, through a lot of very interesting progressive farming and ranching practices, uh, organic farming, uh, some progressive cattle management, we actually can sequester carbon, lots of carbon in the atmosphere, in the soils, in the farm soils, ranch soils, grasslands, um, through photosynthesis, through, through a process that's been going on for, you know, just two billion years. <laughs> so, uh, and so I decided to write a book kind of about, not just about carbon, but all these interesting practices and these folks doing them around the country. Around the country and, and, and around the world, really. I mean, I know that you did some traveling for the book. Well, um, so did we go wrong somewhere in in our in our thinking about carbon and is there was there like a point where you know in your research you found you're like hey we were kind of doing it and then we screwed up or does it not is that not really the story well um yes and no i we 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 screwed up uh, in one respect but we di- we didn't realize that we'd screwed up till, till kind of later um and, and we screwed up way way back uh, when we started uh, plowing of all things, and actually, climate scientists can can look back in time and say that the, the time the, the carbon content of the atmosphere started to rise is when we started to till uh, as a as a species, started to use the plow for agriculture. And what happens there is that when you till, turn over the soil, the carbon that's in the soil, and if anybody listening is a gardener, you know that dark, rich soil. That's that's a lot of that is carbon. So when you till it and turn it over and expose it to the atmosphere, the sunlight and the, and the heat and the oxygen, it, it, uh, it oxidizes and goes back up into the atmosphere. And so they actually can start tracing um, the, uh, the rise in uh, CO2 levels to the rise of agriculture way back when. So that's in a sense, we kind of took a wrong turn there, though we didn't know it at the time. <laughs> we didn't know it till fairly recently, in fact. When we start looking at life underground, and my heroes are microbiologists the last 20 years, so what they've exposed and understood about life in the soil is pretty darn amazing. Um, and what we found is that you want biological life underground. Um, we want biological farming, not chemical-based farming. We want all those nematodes and protozoas and earthworms crawling around down there doing all that good work, not... Um, pouring a lot of chemicals on the land. So that's where we kind of took a wrong turn. We, we lost a lot of carbon in the soils over the years, uh, and now we're at the point where we're trying to figure out how to put some of that carbon back. And then a, kind of a, a terrible irony is that we, we lost all this carbon in the soils, but it's sort of like a cup of water that's been half-drained. Uh, half it's, it's there to be filled again, so we can fill up the soil with carbon uh, that's been drained out of it over the years if we do uh, the right kind of practices, which I describe in the book. Well, I want to get into some of those a little bit later, but before we move forward, maybe you can kind of illuminate for our listeners the, the tilling process. You know, why did we do that? Um, what were the benefits as we understood them at, right. at the time? Right. Well, that's a good, that's a good question. So, I, I think in the early days when the, the plow was invented, and there's a famous hieroglyph of a plow on an Egyptian temple wall in Egypt. Uh, so, five thousand years we've been plowing. I think in the beginning, um, when you turn soil over, it's extremely fertile. It, I mean, it's it's 
full of carbon and life and biology. So I think in the beginning, everybody went, woo woo, look at all, look, look what we can do with a, with a plow. And also plows help uh, t- uh, tamp down weeds. Uh, they help uh, get around rocks and trees and things like that in rocky country. So there are probably a lot of practical reasons to start tilling. It was only later, especially when the tractor was invented, that we really scaled up the effects of plowing. And then the microbiologists began to tell us what happens when you, when you, when you plow through soil. For example, um, for carbon, uh, the carbon transfer between roots, plant roots, and the soil is facilitated by something called mycorrhizal fungi. Fungi, uh, they are uh, the brokers, the carbon brokers in the ground, but plowing tears them all up, kills them. So that uh, if we want to store more carbon, we've got to stop killing the fungi in the soil. Um, so the plow uh, is a, a culprit. I, I didn't realize that I'm not a farmer. <laughs> I know a lot about ranching. But, and this was a surprise to me when I started doing the research. Like, wow, look at all this. So there's a movement in the country um, to, uh, to move towards no-till farming, which is just what it sounds, no, no-tilling, no plowing. It's a different process of putting seeds in the, in the ground through a kind of a chisel plow that just makes a very thin slice in the soil. Uh, so there are uh, um, there are folks out there thinking and doing uh, kind of non-plowing types of agriculture. Yeah. So we're looking. I mean, I think um, I guess what I'm really taking away is we're looking at kind of rethinking how our, our management practices and and what are best practices and kind of what are some of the trade-offs when we choose one um, approach versus another. Well, what I want to um, let our reader or our listeners know, you, as you said, are not a farmer. You're a former archaeologist and a Sierra Club activist. Um, but then in 1997, you, you formed a, a group, the, the uh, Kivira Coalition. Can you talk a little bit about what inspired you to, to start that group and, and what you see as uh, its work? Yeah, you bet. Um, so... Uh, in, ni- in the mid-1990s, out here in New Mexico, where I live, uh, there was a lot of fighting and brawling between ranchers and environmentalists. And I came out of the environmental movement, out of the Sierra Club here in New Mexico. And I met a rancher uh, in the process. Uh, he had joined the Sierra Club, uh, actually rose to a leadership position. And he, he said, I, I ranch differently. I, I have a different attitude towards environmentalism. Um, I... He supported the Mexican wolf reintroduction <clears throat> at the time. <clears throat> so, uh, so he and I started talking about all this fighting going on, and, uh, and our, our guess that ranchers and environmentalists had more in common than indifference, if you really got down to it. So we decided to start a little nonprofit to try to wade into the grazing wars of the mid-'90s uh, out, out west here and uh, find some common ground. Uh, we called it the Radical Center. Uh, these are folks looking for pragmatic solutions to kind of long-standing problems, and they tend to be fairly centrist, meaning that we don't talk about politics. We talk, <clears throat> talk about soil and grass and water instead. And, and when conversations start there, it doesn't matter what your politics are. Uh, you can have these great conversations about land. And so we started having workshops and doing stuff just trying to bring uh, ranchers and conservationists get together around some new uh, ranch practices, uh, kind of grazing in nature's image, uh, and grouping cows up and moving around like wild uh, bison would graze out here, um, 
And uh, one thing led to another. We started branching out into creek restoration work. We have a lot of degraded creek systems out here for some bad management in the past. Um, we eventually ran a ranch ourselves as a nonprofit and got into local grass-fed food uh, distribution sales out of Santa Fe, where I live. And that was an eye-opener for me. I, I'm a city boy from Phoenix, Arizona. <laughs> you know, going, becoming a grass-fed beef producer was uh, was quite a trip, to be honest with you. And it went well. Uh, the Great Recession in 2008 kind of knocked us all off our feet, as it did for many nonprofits. But uh, so, so carbon was kind of the end of the journey in that sense for me. We we were doing all these um, on the ground kind of progressive organic grass-fed stuff, fixing creeks, and I didn't realize the link between all of them was carbon uh, in terms of food, in terms of carbon in the soils, the atmosphere, uh, petroleum, carbon-based petroleum products being a problem, that kind of stuff, until I started doing the research for the book. And one of the things that you you talk about in the book is is that we don't we don't have to invent anything um, to create some of the fixes that you explore. And, and can you, can you fill, fill that out for us? Um, we're not talking about new technology, just, uh, re, right. just, just right. more techniques. Is that, is that right? Yes, yes. Uh, and it all starts with photosynthesis, which is uh, not a technology. Well, I guess you could think of it as a technology. Uh, you know, nature has been processing carbon dioxide into carbon for a really long amount of time. And what's neat about it is uh, plants and trees will do it for free, right? They're out there uh, soaking up CO2 out of the atmosphere, breaking the C off from the O2, and the O2 is oxygen, goes back up and helps us. And the sea goes a lot of places, the carbon, uh, including the soil. So any practice that makes plants happy and trees happy will increase uh, carbon in the soils. So uh, it's all about biology, like I said before, the, the, the microbial life making the microbes happy because they're the ones that process the carbon from the plant. So if you, if you have a practice that increases plant vigor, and makes the microbes happy, then you're storing more carbon in the soil. So for ranchers, that means ranching cattle, moving cattle in a way that invigorates uh, grass, uh, not overgrazes, and uh, a lot of details there. But there's, there's a lot of ranch practices that have been developed over the last 30 years, uh, mimicking the way nature grazes animals, uh, graze and go like bison, that can uh, invigorate plants and store carbon. Uh, we talked about no-till, getting away from the plow, cover cropping, which is uh, having something green growing on the land all year, if you can, or at least something covering the ground in winter as well. That stores more water. It, it makes the microbes happy. Uh, you get more carbon cycling. So from the farming side of it, um, no-till plus cover cropping. In the book, I went to Australia and I learned about a practice called pasture cropping, which I, which was new to me. In fact, it's not done much in America. It's done a lot in Australia, which is where they no-till drill a uh, annual crop in case, in this case, oats into a pasture. So you've got um, a, a oat uh, crop growing up through the pasture, and so then he harvests the oats, and then he turns out his animals, his sheep to graze the pasture. And it, uh, it's done wonders for carbon in the soil and water retention. And, you know, he's, he's got very healthy range 
uh, down there. Uh, nature likes annuals and perennials growing together. That's, that's why weeds are always trying to grow in your garden. Um, and he just decided to stop fighting it and, and instead go for it. So that's, uh, and that's practice has taken off. And that way you get two crops from one plot of land, which is important to feed people. Well, pasture cropping is is a good practice. Uh, I have a whole chapter on ecological restoration, uh, fixing creeks, getting uh, green plants to grow on uh, stream sides. Uh, that's good for everything, for wildlife, for the water cycle, for carbon. Um, a whole chapter on New Orleans and Louisiana where they're trying to restore the wetlands down there. They've been blown away by various hurricanes. Uh, so getting creeks back into shape. There's a short chapter on beavers. Uh, beavers are nature's carbon engineers. Uh, they do fabulous things, and they <laughs> do it for free. Uh, fortunately, wiped a lot of beavers out. They're on, they're on the way back, which is good news. Uh, beaver dams, wetlands, peatlands all sequester a lot of carbon in the soils. So restoring marshes, fixing creeks, no-till farming, pasture cropping, um, rotational grazing of cattle, all these things. Uh, increase carbon in soils, and they and they produce food and and store water, and all these great benefits, uh, all coming from thinking about carbon differently. And and so you know, if I'm a if I'm a rancher, or if I'm someone who's looking to, I'm in a business, and I'm not um, using these management practices. I'm wondering, like, can you talk a little bit about kind of through in your in your work with Kivera, like what were some of the challenges as you're looking to sell these ideas? I mean, because when you lay it out like this, it sounds like, oh, great. Well, let's just, you know, like flip the switch and (laughs) we'll, you know, kind of change, change it all and it'll be great. But it's not happening um, you know, it's, it, right. I think it's happening in, in, and we hear often like kind of these great stories and these spots around the country or around the world. Um, and at the same time, you know, you're looking at the kind of agrochemical complex and, um, being promised, um, you know, in, in TV ads and, and print ads and that, you know, these are going to be the solutions that are going to feed the world. Um, and, and they're not ta- talking about some of these other externalities in those advertisements. But, you know, where where are we at in in this kind of shift? You know, how do we go from these kind of beacons um, of examples and, and start creating a more systematic change? Is that something you're feeling? I mean, hope obviously is in the title of your book. So I guess I'm curious, like, how how hopeful you know you're feeling and how how do we start thinking about those transitions and and how are ranchers thinking about it how are you thinking about it yeah i mean this this is sort of the $64,000 question is how to how do you get more uh scale out of all all this innovation that's going on so there's kind of two parts to the question one um, one is trying to get people to change their minds, uh, farmers and ranchers, to, to adopt new practices. Uh, I mean, think about the plow and how uh, ingrained it is in the paradigm of farming, you know, the plow. Um, and that's that's hard. I mean, we've, we've, we've uh, struggled out here to, to try to convince uh, old-school farmers and ranchers that there are, there are value to new ideas and new practices that also make more profit. Uh, sometimes humans <laughs> behave in irrational ways. Uh, you, you can kind of pr- present facts and figures and ideas, and they say, ah, I'm not going to do that. Um, well, so- yeah, but but I also I feel like, you know, they're like, 
those, those idea that like that uh, the belief in the plow, the belief in those systems come from somewhere and often come from like multiple generations of knowledge. So there is right. this kind of like insider outsider culture to things where I don't know. I, I feel like for me, I'm often. Um, when I'm talking with farmers, I, you know, trying to figure out how to be sensitive to that because I'm not a farmer. And, and so, sure. like, why should they listen to my facts and figures when they're, um, yeah. you know, they, they have this real day-to-day kind of, like, knowledge. It's just, right. like, such a sticky space. Well, and, and compounding it is the the support system for farmers and ranchers. So the, the agro, agrochemical companies that you mentioned, uh, even academia, uh, can be very supportive of kind of the old practices. And so, kind of breaking through all that uh, is is hard. And that's and that's why one of the reasons why I wrote the book was to try to highlight kind of alternate ways of looking at the world. And here are some folks who kind of busted out of that carbon paradigm and are looking at uh, looking at it very differently. There's a farmer in New Hampshire, uh, who's Chapter 2, who considers himself a carbon farmer, but he, and he's doing a lot of fabulous work, uh, and yet uh, he's, a, he's still one or two or three farms. How do you kind of spread these ideas out? Well, first, first you explain the idea so, so folks can get it in their minds. Ha, huh, that's interesting. I never thought about that before. And then I found that peer-to-peer contact, so ranchers talking to ranchers, farmers talking to farmers, it's also one way to get ideas out and about. Um, uh, profit helps. Uh, folks can see that uh, this practice is profitable. That uh, can change people's minds pretty quickly. Uh, but the other part of the question is how do we scale up to these carbon ideas to, to make a difference, um, you know, the climate, uh, food systems. And that at the end of the book, I, I do some speculation about that because that's, that's really a hard question. How do you take these ideas that are kind of on the margin in a sense, right? Change starts on the margin. Ideas come from the outside and move in over time, um, how do you get them to kind of speed up uh, that journey to the center? Um, and, and that's you know, that's tough. We we need policy changes, and we have such a dysfunctional political system now. That how do you how do you get Congress to change the farm bill, for example, <laughs> to incentivize some of the stuff? God, I don't know the answer to that. Um, how do you make an economy out of uh, um, boosting carbon content of soils? Well, I, I, I take some guesses at what um, a pool of money to pay landowners to, to increase the carbon content of the soils would look like. Maybe a carbon tax. Uh, I hate to hate to like mention the word, but uh, which would help the emission side of it as well as help the farmers and ranchers. So, you know, to answer your question, so you just got to throw these ideas out. You've got to show that they're practical, that the other folks are doing them, and that it works. And at some point, hope that. Um, that the light goes on as a, as a society and realize, hey, these are these are practices that help us on all these levels, and maybe we can get it to work economically. We're not not there yet, but uh, I tried just to portray the carbon practices first and foremost, just trying to get those ideas out there. Yeah, well, you know, you got to begin at the beginning. We are going to take just a short break, so Courtney, hold tight. You are listening to the Farm Report, and we'll be right back. This is Chris Howell from Cane Vineyard and Winery, calling in from Spring Mountain above the Napa Valley. Thank you for listening to this show. In our industrial world of highly processed food and wine, we support the values of Heritage Radio Network. 
All of us at Cain encourage you to seek out individuality and beauty in everything you eat and drink. To learn more about us, go to Cain5.com. Hi, I'm Emily Peterson, host of Sharp and Hot. Do you love us? Do you really? Do you count on us for real food news and content? Well, we need your help. HeritageRadioNetwork.org is a not-for-profit organization, which means we depend on underwriting, grants, and the support of members like you to keep broadcasting. Help keep our voice alive. Visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org and click the Donate button today. We promise to never stop in our mission to create a world that's more sustainable, equitable, and delicious by expanding the way eaters think about food. Thanks for listening, and thanks for showing your support. All right, we're back. You're tuned into the Farm Report, and we are on the line with Courtney White talking about his new book, Grass, Soil, Hope, A Journey Through Carbon Country. Um, I want to I wanna spend the, the last little bit of time that we have here. Um, you know, you kind of touch on, towards the end of the book, the tension between um, food and fuel. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit uh, about that space and, and where the carbon conversation fits um, in that area. Uh, yeah. And so I do it through a, a short profile of a research project in France where they have placed solar panels above farm fields, uh, 12 feet above farm fields, in an attempt to both produce renewable energy and shade the crops and the workers, um, dealing with potential heat stress, climate change, hotter temperatures, that kind of stuff. Uh, it's a very interesting project. The, the person who directed it uh, has written a lot about the, uh, the conflict or the tension between land, using land for fuel or using land for food. Often it's just one or the other. So we grow food here or we stop growing food and put solar panels on the ground, uh, or we grow uh, crops that get turned into biofuel, like uh, palm oil plantations, that kind of stuff. And there's, there's a fair amount of tension around what, what is land for? Is it for food? Is it for fuel? Are the plants grown to become a bio crop? Um, and in Europe, this is a kind of a especially sensitive issue because land is at a premium there. So he came up with this idea about well, what if we produce renewable energy and food from the same plot of land? And so they did the research, put solar panels up up above the crops, spaced them out so they got enough sun, and it worked. Uh, they they measured everything very carefully. The plants were just almost almost as productive, and the, um, the solar panels produced a lot of energy, uh, an extra income source during the winter, that kind of stuff. Really interesting idea, and that is that kind of kind of out of the box thinking. Um, you know, challenges that we face. Where's our energy coming from? Where, where's our food coming from? And then hotter and drier conditions potentially under climate change. Here was kind of a win-win-win all the way around. Um, we have a Kivira has an annual conference in Albuquerque. And that scientist, uh, Christian Dupre, is going to come and explain it all for us. Because I think out here, out west, where it's we're getting hot and drier, feels like daily, <laughs> uh, putting uh, solar panels above farm fields may, may be a very interesting choice for us. So, um, so that was one way of kind of resolving that conflict between is, it, is land for fuel? Is it f- for food? Is it for something else? Uh, was to kind of combine them in a very imaginative way. 
And one of the kind of themes I feel like you touch on throughout the book is that essentially there's a role for everyone to play in this conversation and in a kind of affecting change in the way we kind of think about carbon and the way we think about it, the role that, um, you know, we as individuals can play. Essentially, we're on the map. So, you know, for folks who aren't ranchers, um, you know, who aren't farmers, how do we, um, right. how do we, how do we push the kind of ball forward? What's our role? Yeah, yeah, and that's that's a good point. So the cover of the book is a map. It's a map we drew some years ago trying to think of all the different regenerative, sustainable practices out there, but we also made sure that everybody uh, was on the map somewhere. So if you live in a city, you're on the map. If you live in the country, you're there. If you're a biologist, an artist, a birder, a hiker, an eater, or all eaters, uh, you're on the map somewhere. You have a role to play. Carbon has a role in your life. Um, it's a matter of kind of finding out what that role is. I mean, as a quick example, you're you're in Brooklyn, is that right? Is that yeah. where this is? Yeah. So, so there's a story in the book about Eagle Street rooftop farm there in Brooklyn. Um, Annie Novak uh, and the, the rooftop farming movement, uh, which I think is really, really interesting. Urban agriculture, uh, there's a role there for folks who live in cities to get involved. Uh, you know, on that carbon frontier on the rooftops. So that's an interesting idea. So there, uh, everybody's there. We're all carbon-based uh, people. Uh, we eat food, uh, drink water. So I'm trying to understand where that food comes from, where the water comes from, um, uh, is part of the equation. Uh, it's not just a, a job for farmers and ranchers to figure out uh, we're all part of the equation. It's just a matter of where can you plug in? Hopefully, uh, by reading the book and getting to the end, uh, you'll, you'll, you'll see a role for yourself. <laughs> um, well, kind of uh, one, one final area I want to explore, and, and this is, for, for me, something I feel like I've been spending um, a lot of my time personally trying to develop, and that's this, this idea of land literacy, um, kind right. of working to to understand the the kind of holistic nature of these systems and, and that interplay and, you know, where are kind of leverage points. And, you know, obviously you came into the conversation as a result of your environmental work. Um, so I'm wondering, like, standing in between the kind of environmental world and the egg world, you know, when you're when you have your egg hat on and you're talking to environmentalists, you know, what do you want to tell them about their like pursuit of land literacy and then alternatively when you're an environmentalist hat facing the kind of ranchers and farmers you know what's the message in that direction you sit in kind of like a unique position between the two and i'm wondering um if you can kind of share with us you know in broad strokes the kind of main points you you want these two groups to be coming to the messages that each have going towards one another yeah, and in fact, that was very much the beginning of Kivira was to was to stand in that radical center and talk about land um, and land literacy is very much on all our minds, but largely because we're, we're land illiterate. Uh, we, we did workshops where we actually would take people out on the land and we would point to the ground and say, "What's going on here?" And most folks don't know because we're, we're we're illiterate. So when we did those workshops. 
ranchers and conservationists would come together and we'd say, what's, what's the water cycle doing here? What's, is that erosion? Is that not erosion? Uh, what's the mineral cycle? What, are, what plants do we see? Uh, very, mu- very much in the spirit of Aldo Leopold, the great conservationist, would take his students out on a patch of forest and he'd say, okay, what's going on here? And a lot of them would kind of kick the dirt because it's, we don't know often what's going on. And, and that's a literacy question, reading the landscape, uh, understanding the, the, the vowels and the words uh, out there, the trees, the water, the, the land. Um, so I have found that the conversation between ranchers and environmentalists, when it focuses on land, on actual grass and soil and water, which has been well described by ecologists, and we got all the language there, the, the farmers and ranchers understand that language from a, from a production perspective, uh, that conversation can be very robust very quickly. And people in cities who come out to the workshops also get it quickly. Once the, once the vocabulary is there, we understand what a pedestal is, what a rill is, what a grass plant is, what it does, what roots do. Uh, man, those conversations go quick. And so I think literacy, I think you're exactly right, is the key to having these conversations. And if we don't have that vocabulary, don't share it between these groups, um, we end up not being able to talk to each other very well. So environmentalists can explain the conservation side of it. They're concerned about wildlife, uh, you know, wildlife populations, habitat. And then the ag folks can talk about, well, you know, we need to produce food off this landscape. Often it's the same language. It's uh, land function, land health. Is the water cycle proper? Is it working? Is this land eroding? Is it coming back? Uh, if it's eroding, it, it harms both uh, the goals of both groups. So, so land health and the vocabulary of it is definitely the common ground between all these different groups. Well, Courtney, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a really interesting conversation, and I, I hope to have you back on again soon. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you very much. Again, folks, that book is uh, Grass, Soil, Hope, A Journey Through Carbon Country by Courtney White with a foreword by Michael Pollan. You can find it wherever fine books are sold. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of The Farm Report. This show, like all 35 of our weekly programs, is available for free as a download through our website, www.heritageradionetwork.org. You can also find us on iTunes and Stitcher, but however you listen, um, we look forward to having you and stay tuned in. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. <laughs>